Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. On the 6th of May this year, voters in Scotland will elect a new Scottish government. What are the science, technology, higher education and research issues that will face that incoming government? On the 13th of April, a Science Hustings event was held with spokespeople from five political parties in Scotland. That event organised by the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Royal Society of Biology, the Royal Society of Chemistry and the Institute of Physics. Joining me to discuss issues facing Scottish science and some of the political responses from the Hustings event is Professor Marcel Jaspers, Chair in Chemistry at the University of Aberdeen and Vice President International at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Professor Jaspers, welcome to the postcards. Thank you very much, Gavin. Thank you very much for having me on today. So just set the scene for us a, a little bit. What are some of the key science research and higher education issues which are going to face that incoming Scottish government? Yeah, thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed the hustings yesterday as well. It was quite interesting to hear what their opinions were on everything. And it was good to see that the, um, the spokespeople were on top of their brief for most of the, the scientific questions. So it was good to see that. Um, uh, but any incoming government's got a lot of things to face. Um, and, and one of that is the fallout from the pandemic, really. So because a lot of us have, have, have switched over to doing sort of antiviral research or, or you know, vaccine research and other things that are related to the, the pandemic, it means that we're able to switch to that quickly, but we also have to now switch back after uh, people have returned to their daily lives. Once that's happened, uh, we need to sort of convert that enthusiasm for science that people have now uh, for solving the other massive problems that are facing us and things like climate change, uh, the energy question. Those things need to be solved um, over the next 20 years, really. Other things more sort of, you know, bureaucratically, uh, the REF went in a few days ago, the, the Research Excellence Framework, and that will yield you know, results, rankings, and that always go with that. And then uh, the Research Excellence Grant will be divided up based on that, those scores. I mean, to see how that will then affect the university's positioning, uh, the ability to maintain scientific excellence, infrastructure, etc. I would say that the other things that are facing us are making sure that there is a, an educated, a scientifically educated workforce um, and that training uh, is, is there, is appropriate for people to, 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 get, to work in high-tech jobs. Uh, that, that, that workforce is diverse. It comes from all sectors of society. And finally, my point would be to make sure that the research infrastructure that we have in Scotland is fit for the 21st century. That's a huge question. It's expensive to maintain, but if we don't maintain it, it'll cost much more to rebuild later on. So let's pick up a few of those issues that uh, you've been talking about. And you started, I guess, unsurprisingly, as they did last night at the Hustings with the COVID pandemic. How do you think the pandemic has affected science and research uh, and how it's seen in Scotland? I mean, you talked a little bit there about uh, the, the enthusiasm for science that, that's now around. And how does all of that play into the election? From my own perspective, I mean, I've, I've seen it. It's hugely positive what's happened during the pandemic. People have got together internationally and solved problems that they otherwise wouldn't have done. I've been working on you know, policy papers for science uh, with people all around the globe uh, over the last year or so. And that is some of it's to do with the pandemic. Some of it's to do with other things like, you know, climate change, um, the protection of the oceans and things like that. And we could do with more of that. I think what we need to see is, is to sort of maintain that, um, that ability to work globally whilst maintaining sort of the focus on certain areas. A lot of what we did during the pandemic is based on basic science that was done before the pandemic. It's hugely important to recognize the fact that it didn't just happen. People said, oh, 
the scientists solved the problems uh, over the last year or so and the vaccines came about. That was based on 25 years of research prior to that. And that's important uh, to recognize that people were doing basic science on which that is built. So what we need to have is that ability to, um, to address those changes that I mentioned, climate change, energy challenge, etc. but that the basic science must continue to continue um, to, to, to allow serendipitous discoveries. And I think that's critical for us to, to think about. But nevertheless, I think the global working is here to stay. Uh, the ability to, to easily collaborate with other people abroad is hugely advantageous. And again, after Brexit, um, Scotland's place in the world uh, needs to be maintained within the international research ecosystem. So I thought Brexit would be mentioned at some stage. So let's uh, let's dive in and think a little bit about Brexit. Obviously, there's a challenge for the incoming Scottish government dealing with some of the issues that emerge from Brexit in the sort of this space, uh, and that includes research funding, that includes EU students, uh, and includes the, the replacement to structural funds and a number of different other things. How does that debate play out at the moment in terms of some of the politics and the parties and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, I was watching it anxiously because um, I'm a great fan of the EU programs. I'm a great fan of the Erasmus scheme. Primarily, I mean, I'm a European citizen myself. I'm from Holland originally, and I still have a Dutch passport. So, you know, I kind of have to declare an interest there. But secondly, I've seen for students, for instance, how positive the Erasmus scheme is. They go out, they come back changed. Uh, we, we invite students into our laboratories. The fact it's reciprocal um, and it's all around Europe uh, and it's even PhD students can go out and learn new skills in um, high-tech uh, locations. So we've had students that got, have gone out to not-for-profit organizations in Spain, for instance, to learn how to do certain types of science that they couldn't do otherwise. And again, they get that feeling of being a European citizen and doing the science and learning about another culture. I think that's, that's critical as well. So we, we always invite people into our own laboratories to, to do placements of different types. Uh, so what I always thought about is that, you know, the, the worry was... The money could be replaced for any of these European programs, but you couldn't replace the mobility aspect of it and the multilateral nature. So again, you can have lots of bilateral programs, but they don't replace a big multilateral scheme like the EU programs. And secondly, the mobility part. Uh, but by, by making it more difficult for students uh, and researchers to come to the UK, we're going to lose a lot of that multilateral uh, aspect of that research. I'm not sure if... Um, how difficult the new visa scheme will be. Again, we'll, we'll wait for that to, to, to transpire. And I'm not sure how well the Turing scheme will replace uh, what we've done. Other thing I was disappointed to see is that we didn't join the European Innovation Council, which again, will have helped a lot of SMEs. So the kind of things that the Scottish Enterprise does is helped by what the European Innovation Council can do at the European level. And a lot of SMEs benefit from those schemes by working readily with European partners in small uh, programs. And again, there's, there's a lot of money available there. I just think it's, um, it's difficult to see how it will play out. Again, the opportunities for international collaborations more widely uh, through the Commonwealth and, and other things that the uh, UK has, um, has looked at are interesting. But I feel that having neighbours on our doorstep is, is incredibly positive. And, and again, I'm just so glad that the, the schemes are continued. The, the, the worry was that it wouldn't happen at the last minute. Uh, and again, a lot of us were concerned that this was going to be detrimental. Mm. Even so... I think we haven't signed the official contracts as far as I know. I can't remember what the the, 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 the timing of this all is, but uh, so far, I mean, we've had guarantees of, of European uh, participation continuing in Horizon Europe. So 
Scotland were not voting in favour of Brexit, and this has brought back the issue of Scottish independence and a second referendum, uh, which is in amongst the campaign issues for the Scottish uh, government. What are the implications, I guess, for Scottish independence um, to sort of science and research in Scotland, would you say? There's the, <clears throat> that's the sort of bureaucratic question is, is, is how would you fund the research and what decision would be made on the amount of the GDP, the percentage of the GDP that would be dedicated to research? And again, you know, nations like Sweden have gone up to 3%. And they're small countries, they're very research active and it, it's benefited them hugely. And it also benefits their international interaction. So I, I would say, you know, if you can up your amount of GDP to dedicate to research, that it be beneficial not only solving local problems, but again, to uh, be able to interact globally and, and attract the best researchers here. So again, that's an important one. The problem is, if you're going to do that, uh, and you have to set up an entirely independent research funding infrastructure, that's a massive ask. Now, we have things like Scottish Enterprises already uh, that do a lot of the uh, funding for uh, SMEs. But for basic research, again, how would you do that? How would you replicate it? Where would you look uh, to, to, to look at systems that work well? And my feeling would be you would look at small countries like Norway or the Netherlands, where they in, the, the funding systems work well uh, and they are relatively equitable and they don't rely on all or nothing funding. There's lots of opportunities for getting smaller amounts of funding. And we'll come back to that question later on, I think. But um, I would look at, at, at models in other countries and, and make sure that that was in place before switching from UKRI to whatever the Scottish funding system would be called. And, and one of the, and uh, we say we may as well talk about it now, one of the issues is not just with the research money, but it's with some of the other money that came from EU participation, which mm-hmm. have then been involved with these things. And the, the UK government has been talking about the Shared Prosperity Fund, and it's been talking about levelling up across all nations and regions of the UK, including uh, of course, in Scotland, and including levelling up on research, which was part of the R&D strategy. And I'm just wondering how all of this is seen in Scotland at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 good to see that happening, and it's good to see that it won't just be in the, the Golden Triangle, you know, in you know, Oxford, Cambridge, and, and, and London. To say on the other side, Scotland has done incredibly well out of UKRI funding. Uh, it always punches well above its weight in terms of... Um, gaining funding, you know, success rates and things like that. You know, I look at my area sort of biotechnology, chemistry, uh, and I think we've done very well there. But I think uh, if, you were to, if, if you were to try to level that up, the, the kind of things that we have in Scotland that are doing well are things like the innovation centers and allowing them a bigger role in how to, um, how to develop uh, Scotland's strengths. So, I mean, I, I was part of the in, um, Industrial Biotechnology Innovation Centre for some time, and I saw how, how they were working to try and get research funding in, so matching funding from the EU, matching funding from the BBSRC, for instance, to try and get uh, Scotland-specific schemes for, um, for funding. Now, they've gone, now they've gone nationwide, so the whole of the UK can join in some of these schemes, but also to get a, um, a group of industry together and being interested in how to solve problems together, how to work together to do these things and addressing questions like uh, training. So we'll come back to that in a minute, but things like apprenticeships and things like that, we're, we're in that that mix. So that's that's really good. I mean, you can see these things moving and I can think that that's a good approach to take. Uh, the other side would be to, again, I mentioned before, upgrading scientific research facilities. Often research grants require the latest equipment. And if you were to do that as Scotland, 
we, we see things like particular types of research infrastructure, genome sequencing, uh, large-scale um, equipment facilities, to be able to, to make sure that we have those and that they can be used by all scientists around Scotland. Not necessarily that every institution has everything. You may have to centralise certain facilities and make sure it's not just in the central belt, you know, that it is all around Scotland. It's not just in one place. The last thing I would be is that the kind of questions that we, we have around um, uh, researcher career tracks and things like that. So again, you need, the, you need the funding, you need the facilities, but you also need the people. The excellent scientists are really important to that. And, and some scientists are really just fit and they're, they're best uh, focusing on a research question for long periods of time. Uh, and they, they perhaps don't want to go into teaching, they don't want to go into administration, they want to do some research. There's no real career track for some of those people. Uh, there are some research institutions where that's possible. I would see that there has to be a, a great deal of thinking about um, how you would manage the best research a key, a career infrastructure for, for, for researchers who want to do that and want to go down those career tracks, or maybe technologists, people who are very good at running particular types of research facilities and instruments, and allow them that freedom to develop facilities, build things, do things uh, that they wouldn't otherwise be possible, or they might have to go into aspects of career that they, they don't really want to go into. Like I mentioned, some people don't want to go into teaching or admin uh, too much. Again, that, that, that's something that, that's been considered. And I think that was also in the Hustings yesterday that was being discussed. Um, this, this idea of having very short-term contracts for certain types of, of researchers is counterproductive. You need stability in order to be able to think and, and do something productive. So that takes us very neatly into the issue of skills and into the issue which you raised in your opening uh, remarks about a, a science and educated workforce. What are the key challenges that you see at the moment in Scotland and where do you think that any incoming Scottish government would need to take some action? Yes, I mean, uh, a, lot, a lot was discussed yesterday on, on, on training and skills. And, and I think, uh, as mentioned um, by several of the uh, speakers yesterday, uh, it starts from primary school. You know, scientific education starts from that very early stage. And I think it's really important to make sure that, that from primary school, you understand what science is and how it works and what it can deliver and what it can't deliver. That it's not just some kind of... Um, established body of facts but it actually is a, an evolving um, process and that sometimes you know what, what what is true one day may no longer be true the next day because new science has come along and displaced it and if you understand that process you can understand that why scientists at the beginning of the pandemic were saying one thing and, and two months later they seem to be saying something else and it's just that our knowledge has evolved over that that short time period to understand that and I think one of the things we've seen over the last year as well is, and I was pleased to see this is that the the media are representing how statistics is translated to the public in a much better way. And again, I think that needs to be something we need to all understand how to interpret statistics and information and what it means and what it means in terms of risk. You know, especially recently we've seen with, uh, with the vaccine uh, risks, for instance, and, and what they mean in terms of other types of risk and how we compare that. So, you know, there, there's a risk of one in a million of, of death from the, the vaccine. Uh, what does that compare to? That's important. So interpretation of risk is really important. But um, my feeling is as well, that again, this is discussed yesterday, is, is how we allow students at school and universities to learn. And my feeling is that I'm, I'm a person who learns with my hands, right? So I'm really keen on practical work. So I chose a university course that had the maximum amount of practical work in it. And I was also very fortunate in my school teachers allowing us to do a lot of practical work. So again, what we need is that recognition that some students are better working with their hands they learn different ways there's lots of different types of learner 
and to do exciting practical work. You know, some, there's some stuff. So allowing schools and universities to have that equipment base to allow students to do really cool experiments and get them enthusiastic about science and understanding what they're doing and why they're doing it and how they're doing it, not just a, a recipe by rote, but getting them involved in designing the experiments. This is why we're doing it. This is how we're doing it. And like, like I said, I mean, I was fortunate with my science teachers at school. Uh, and I think we really need to respect what teachers do and reward them uh, appropriately. You know, without that, we're not going to have any enthusiasm for science. And I've seen some great science teachers out there. I do a lot of outreach work and I see some great science teachers doing some great work, uh, sometimes with limited facilities. But I think, you know, there are some schools around Scotland that have really good science facilities. And I think we need to keep that going. So is the, is the problem curriculum? Is the problem that teachers are not allowed the flexibility or they have too many other things that they're required to do uh, or is the problem I I equipment i mean what's holding back the kind of things that you've been talking about yeah so a bit of it's science budget for schools you know making sure there's enough there for um buying the equipment and running it and and, and buying the the chemicals the consumables basically for mm -hmm. that uh, the second thing is is over assessing our students you know we have often too much uh, examination going on and the freedom for you know having having courses that are almost one year before you have to examine another year another exam so you, you basically only spend six months learning something and you spend three months preparing for the exam which is which is disappointing for a lot of students uh, again discussed and I'll, I'll mention this again, again in a minute is this idea of silos right so it's it's this this this, this problem of teaching in traditional subject disciplines at, at schools, whereas actually at, at universities, we may not do research in those disciplines at all. Uh, we, may, we may have aspects. So how would you do that at schools? It's more difficult, general science teaching, uh, you know, quite often it's better, perhaps better to have, have the, the blocks that says chemistry, physics, maths, whatever, but also more modern stuff like biochemistry or um, molecular biology. These things can be included at, at, at higher levels maybe. I don't know, but what I do see is that, that school teaching is has moved on a huge amount recently, and that at advanced higher levels, at least you have often the, the opportunity to do projects, and I see some of the students doing some very exciting projects addressing some interesting questions. So again, it's, it's a mixture of availability of, of resources and facilities. It's the freedom to allow teachers to do some of this stuff, and finally, the, um, the over-assessing of students, seeing too many exams going on. And how many of those issues then translate up into higher education in Scotland? So obviously the curriculum is much freer. It's a decisions made by uh, the academics and the universities themselves. Although mm -hmm. in some subjects where there's a sort of professional qualification, then there are bodies that, that get involved in that. But there are clearly resource issues. And of course, this year it's been incredibly difficult for students to come in and actually access the kind of hands-on teaching that, that you've been talking about. But hopefully that's just an exception. But how is university teaching going and adapting to some of the changes so that the next generation of students come out with the skills that we need? Yes, I mean, what we see quite often is that we're doing skills building in the first and the early years of university. So we're getting students to do particular practicals to learn skills, and then to apply those skills. So there are imaginative ways to teach practical work. And, and for instance, things like environmental science questions. You can say, for instance, you know, somebody's building a playground by the river with wood that's been treated with um, a fungicide and the river's nearby. What would you do in terms of research to figure out how much pesticide or, or fungicide will go into the river? And then the students design a, a research program around that and they do the research. So that's, that's really exciting kind of stuff. With project work as well, we get them more involved in the actual research within a research um, setting. So they'll come into our research labs and they do work. 
and that's exciting too. And quite often those projects are interdisciplinary. So we'll take students from the medical sciences, the medical sciences will take some of our students to go across there. So quite often students get that broader experience. There are also courses that are more broad based. So again, they have courses that involve everything from, you know, we run a course on science communication, which goes all the way from ethics, intellectual property, entrepreneurship to communication of science. And those are really, really good. But if I were to have um, free reign, what I would do is set up a course on, say, something like drug discovery. Right? So talk about the pandemic at the beginning. How do you make an antiviral? What do we need to know in order to teach that? And you would go right from the basis. You would go, well, okay, what do we know about the virus? We need pharmacologists. We need chemists. We need molecular designers. We need people at the other side talking about ethics. How do you do research trials and things like that? So, again, you can build a really exciting course. The question is, would people be willing to take that leap into something that is unknown? Okay, so you'd have to convince the students this is a really cool thing to do, or would you do it at postgraduate level? And I have the feeling that we can do some really good stuff at first and second year level where people are coming in from different disciplines and just saying, well, actually, let's work as a group to solve these problems. And it's a different way of learning, but it'd be very interesting. Yeah, and, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about the fact that at school and in many people's minds, uh, things are in certain disciplines and certain buckets in terms of different types of science, and actually problems are not problems are spread across and need that that kind of wider perspective. So let me finish off with an impossible question for you. In a mythical world in which you're elected uh, into the Scottish government on the 6th of May, with some responsibility for science and research in Scotland, what would be your priorities in the, in the, in the next sort of 12 to 18 months? A lot of it would be around education of science, probably. Uh, scientific literacy uh, from primary school upwards. I would make sure that there is a pipeline of education that involves different pathways for different people. So again, uh, people with different mindsets might want to do different things. I would make sure that we have everything from primary school, secondary school, make that broad-based education possible. Uh, Lots of practical work for those who want it. And then moving into apprenticeships on the one side and university courses that are exciting and interesting. And to make sure we have the skills in the workforce that we need uh, to make Scotland a a, a more scientifically productive place and again it's already starting from quite a high level but I think what's often is is often not clear is how that pipeline goes all the way from the beginning to when people go into into the workforce or research research base etc so again yeah that, that would be my my thinking about how we can make the pipeline productive all the way through well let's see uh, who's elected and what they do when they are that's all we have time for professor jaspers thank you very much thank you very much You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Professor Marcel Jaspers, Chair in Chemistry at the University of Aberdeen and Vice President International at the Royal Society of Edinburgh. A recording of the Science Hustings event for the Scottish Parliament held on the 13th of April is available on the Royal Society of Edinburgh's YouTube channel. And there's a link to that recording on the Foundation's website at www foundation.org.uk forward slash podcasts. Also on our website are our details of all our activities, all our events, and all previous editions of this podcast.